Good morning, everyone, and good to be with you today. What a privilege it is to join in with Andy and the Ministry of Young Life. I think of how Andy was at a um, at a Christian college and his first year, and then wanted to go to a wanted to be more involved in a secular college and moved just for the purpose of ministry years ago. And he's working out his life now in ministry as well. And what a privilege to be able to join alongside him there in the things that are going on here in Topeka. I uh, spoke a few weeks ago uh, on uh, the witness of of rebels and martyrs, and I took the tack of talking mainly about the witness of martyrs. And the witness of martyrs is a very clear thing. It's a, you can't confuse the gospel message when you're talking about a martyr. Uh, the witness of, a, of, of the Alka Five, like we talked about before, guys like Roger Yodarian and Jim Elliott and, and uh, Nate Saint, those guys, they, all that they, in dying at the hands of natives, although they had guns, choosing not to use their guns on the natives because they knew Christ and they knew that the guys, the natives that they were reaching out to hadn't had yet a chance to have the gospel presented to them in their own language. And so they chose not to defend themselves with their guns and instead to die for the sake of Christ, not even knowing for sure whether the natives were ever going to hear the gospel, which they did, and a tribe was converted and great things happened. The witness of martyrs is something that cannot be confused. It gets a little bit more confusing, though, when you start talking about the witness of rebels. And in uh, the passage we've been going through in First Peter, it, it talks about, in, starting in v- verse 11 of chapter 2 and on through chapter 3 and into chapter 4, it's talking about the witness of people who suffer for Christ. And Peter's trying to especially make the case that there is a, a point of where you're suffering for Christ can uh, have a tremendous impact upon our culture and our world around us. Whether you are suffering at the hands of, a, of an unjust authority or whether you're suffering as a laborer for a boss, a servant, a slave for a boss, or whether you're suffering as a, uh, in a family, uh, as a wife perhaps with a husband who's an ungodly husband or something. There's a tremendous witness that goes out to the rest of the world by such suffering. But I didn't feel like I had left things quite where I wanted to at that point. It's, if we stop right there, it's like there's no basis for any other kind of suffering, and it can easily lead to an idea of Christian pacifism. And so I didn't want to just stop right there. Uh, what I'm going to say today will not be the final word on the matter. Uh, I hope it does provoke discussion and a lot of interest, and, and maybe there'll be chances to talk about it more. It'll be something that for you to study for yourself and come up with your own convictions about, certainly. But I hope it's a, just another opportunity to raise this whole point. I'd like to, first of all, start out with kind of a quick review of some of our rebels for, them, for our country, the, our founding fathers, and what might have been motivating them. We oftentimes don't talk about or hear about this aspect of our founding fathers.
This is a copy of what the first Bible printed in English in America looked like. This Bible was printed by the U.S. Congress in 1782. In the records, it says that this Bible was, quote, a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of our schools, end quote. So the first Bible printed in America in English was printed by Congress for the use of our schools. It's worse than that. In the front of the cover, it says that Congress resolved the United States and Congress assembled recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States. So the first Bible printed in English in America was done by the guys who signed the documents, endorsed by Congress, and done for the use of schools. And we're going to be told that they don't want any kind of religion and education. They don't want voluntary prayer. No, it doesn't make sense. This document by itself is fairly significant. But in 1830, Congress commissioned these four paintings over here to recapture what the official record said was the Christian history of the United States. So in these four paintings, you have really a span of several hundred years. If I take you through them chronologically, the first is back there, Columbus, landing in the Western world in 1492. Uh, they got out, they knelt down, they had a prayer service. You see the cross they have. They named the land where they had landed San Salvador, meaning Holy Savior, which tells you something of the thinking that was going on then. You come back over my shoulder here. This is the baptism of Pocahontas in Jamestown, and this was in 1613. Uh, over here, the fourth painting is 1620. This is the embarkation of the pilgrims coming to America. You see them gathered around the Bible there. You see the prayer meeting they're having. Now, if you just take those four paintings right there, those four paintings in this great secular hall of government, those four paintings represent two prayer meetings, a Bible study, and a baptism, which is not bad for a secular building. As a matter of fact, you're standing in what in 1857 was the largest church in the United States, is the U.S. Capitol. Back on December the 4th of 1800, uh, members of Congress, members of the Senate, Thomas Jefferson was over the Senate, you had John Trumbull over the House. They decided that on Sundays we would turn, turn the Capitol building into a church building. And starting on Sunday, we started having services in the Capitol. Now, six weeks after that, Thomas Jefferson became President of the United States. But for his eight years as president, he went to church here at the U.S. Capitol, listened to the sermons here at the Capitol, and being commander-in-chief, he decided he could help the worship here at the Capitol. He ordered the Marine Corps band to come play the worship services at the Capitol. Now, that'd be kind of cool having the Marine Corps band as your worship band, you know, in church. That church went for the better part of a century, and by 1857, there were 2,000 people a week that went to church in the hall of the House of Representatives. In addition to that, there were four other churches that met at the Capitol. First Congregational, was this was their church home, as was First Presbyterian, as was Capitol Hill Presbyterian. Churches met here. There was nothing secular or seen to be secular about this building until the last 30, 40, 50 years. I'm revived. I feel different. I feel that I'll go home and know how to pray. Last night we walked around the Capitol. I spent more time crying and weeping listening to Brother David as he spoke about our government and the documents that he held up. And I said, Lord, I said, well, how can I be used? The David Barton tour of the Capitol. Within two and a half hours of the Capitol. Capitol building and getting some history about what's been going on uh, as far as how this nation was started. And, and we've been lied to, and that's the, the honest to God truth. And just not and knowing that has really, I'm a little angry about it. And, uh, and I'm at a point of, of getting the education that I need. You see the statue to the left of the door over there, that white marble statue? That is President James A. Garfield. President Garfield uh, was one of the young major generals in the Civil War. Uh, he was a war hero. He became Speaker of the House. He became the 20th President of the United States. And by the way, uh, that man founded Howard University, uh, one of them. 
Now, that doesn't seem like a typical presidential activity today. That's what we used to do with presidents in the past. Again, you'd walk through, you'd see that statue, you'd think, oh, there's a president. You'd never think there's a minister. We've so compartmentalized Christianity in such a small box that we don't realize our military leaders, our, our ministers, our educators, our, our, our presidents used to be ministers. That's why I say about one-fourth of these statues are ministers of the gospel. Uh, the church has been silent. It's been a real eye-opener to see, uh, you know, the forefathers of our faith in this country, how they engaged the culture. They had a positive impact on the culture, and really we're all the beneficiaries of that generations later. Now, if you come back to these guys right here, these 56 guys right here are the ones that create all the problem with religious expression public today. You see, every time we go into a public setting on a court case, and what's happened is we've all been trained to recognize the two least religious founding fathers. We can all find Jefferson and Franklin, and everybody else was just like them. Really. I mean, most people have no clue that Jefferson started church in the U.S. Capitol that it went for a century. Most people have, have no clue that Thomas Jefferson in 1803 negotiated a treaty with the Kaskaskia Indians in which Jefferson put federal funds to pay for missionaries to go evangelize the Indians and gave federal funds so that after they were converted, we'd build them churches in which to worship. And that's our least religious founding father, okay, which tells you something about the others. Out of the 56 guys who signed the Declaration, you have 29 who held seminary or Bible school degrees. My first visit to FRC uh, was that of going through the Capitol tour with David Barton. And that changed my life. <laughs> okay. We'll stop it there. Just wanted to review that just real briefly. I don't know about you, but I know it was a real eye-opener to me as I... Uh, got involved in schooling with my children and, and, uh, and uh, also actually before that uh, when I was in North Africa and doing culture classes on uh, American culture and history and I was just shocked to find out as I started reading the Declaration of Independence myself and the Constitution and some of our early documents and to find all the biblical themes that were through it. In fact, I was in a Muslim country where I could not present the gospel from the, from the front of the classroom but through our documents of our um, American past I could actually present the gospel through our, our documents of our, of, of our country. And that was a, a fascinating thing for me to find out. I had never realized that going through any of my classes in school or in, raised in, in the schools that I'd gone through. So it, the witness of, of rebels gets muddled after a while. It gets, as we, try to, as, we, as we look back and we think about rebellion against England and all that happened, we raised the question before, how could our founding fathers ever have rebelled found it within them to rebel against England, in fact, in, in light of the fact that, that uh, we are called to suffer as Christ himself suffer, suffered for the church. And that is certainly the clearest witness we can have. Well, I wonder, lest we get caught up in an idea of, of, um, of Christian pacifism, I guess, and, and there is that idea out there, and if somebody's got that conviction, uh, that's, uh, that's fine. But this morning, I am going to present a different viewpoint we're going to, uh, and I'd like to just look at it myself. I personally don't believe that the Bible teaches Christian pacifism. If you um, look at the, um, when you look at the Bible, um, the, um, we got the text here? Okay. I guess before we get to that, the, um, so many aspects, there's a, the, 
you have Jesus, of course, uh, looking back violently two times. He, he forced the money changers to leave the, the, uh, the temple. It's described in John 2, verses 13 through 17, and again in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 13, towards the beginning of his, in, of his ministry, towards the end of his ministry. Two times he cleansed the temple, and he didn't do it gently. He did it with a, cord of, with a whip at the time. Not only that, but John the Baptist uh, commanded he was as he was baptizing people and telling them to repent he didn't uh, he didn't tell the soldiers to lay down their arms and get out of being out and get out of the military instead he he told them to um, not to extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and to be content with their wages uh, jesus himself uh, he uh, was called upon to heal a centurion a roman centurion's servant and the he didn't tell the, the centurion, no, you're in the military, you're a man of war, I'm not going to heal your servant, you've got to get out of the military first or anything like that. No, instead he went and healed the this, this servant and he commended the centurion for his faith. He said, I've found nobody else's faith like that before. Actually, Aaron, he didn't go and, and heal the servant, did he? I, he? I saw you kind of looking at me there. He, he did it from a distance and that's what amazed the centurion at the time, that Jesus could just say, heal, and, and the centurion believed that it would be done and went and found out that it had been done. So Jesus commended the centurion for his faith. Uh, in the Hall of Fame of Faith, in Hebrews 11, it names warrior judges such as Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel, and even King David, all of whom it says they ex- explicitly, through their faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, and put foreign armies to flight. You don't put foreign armies to flight by, uh, by being passive, do you? Uh, although there aren't any proof texts for teaching rebellion against authority, it is possible to piece together a biblical basis for self-defense and even rebellion. And I might note that this is particularly a Calvinist Presbyterian theology born out of the religious wars of Europe where Protestants organized and defend their lives, families, and property against tyrannical kings who were claiming divine right that just because they were born into a family, they had the right to then be the king, to be the authority, and they had the might then to do whatever they wished. George Washington was from an Episcopalian or or Church of England background himself, but he was so thankful for the Presbyterians and for the philosophy and theology that they brought in to the revolution of of America that he gave, I think it was about $40,000, which is a huge sum at the time, to start a university, which is now called George Washington University. And it's a Presbyterian university that George Washington helped start because he was so thankful for the Presbyterian theology that had come in to defend the revolution at the time. So what is a a theology then that we might be able to talk about? Where does it come from? And I might have to have help with this. What do I focus on? The computer, Eric? (laughs) Ah, that works. Okay, if I stand over here maybe then. Six points I'd like to look at just real quickly um, that are... uh, all people are created equal. All people are corrupt. No person is above the law. 
Rulers rule by consent of the governed. When a ruler breaks the law, the people are responsible to hold the ruler accountable. When a ruler and the people break the law, God will remove both of them. Now, I'm obviously speaking to a Christian audience today, and some of this may be very strange to you if you're not from a Christian background. Uh, Number one, just the fact that we'll be using the Bible as a textbook, as a basis for this, probably could be very strange to you. And if you have questions about the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, whether we should base any of our, our lives on it, I would just say that in our world history, and especially in our country's history, the Bible is an essential book. It's the most popular book of all time. It's been translated in more languages than any other book. Tyrants all over the world fear it. It is, it, is, it is banned in Muslim countries. It's banned in communist countries because it is so dangerous. And we tend to take it for granted in our country and oftentimes think it's not worth reading or looking at. What a shame on us. Our founding fathers had a Christian biblical worldview. And if you wonder where, how in the world they ever got such a thing, then uh, I'm not going to try to explain all that this morning, but any of us who are leaders here would be glad to explain with you later on the reason why we believe the Bible to be inerrant and why the Bible should be the authority in our lives. As you look at these different principles, you'll see that there are, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, that there's a lot of biblical texts that would probably be backed up by these principles. They're not out of a... They're not... Uh, they're not just pulled out of the blue, out of, out of some hat or something. The first four probably, or at least, yeah, the first four probably almost nobody would, ag- would disagree with. Everybody would just say, of course. Although not in every culture would they say, of course. But for us in our culture, we're pretty much used to them. All people are created equal. Comes out of the Declaration of Independence, doesn't it? Thomas Jefferson. And where does that come from in the Bible? Well, it would come from Genesis uh, Genesis one twenty six to 27, we have, and I've got to stand up here. And then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created him. Male and female, he created them. And we are all, in one sense, equal in that we are all image bearers of God. uh, There should be, and we believe in equal opportunity as a result, that we are, because we are created equal. But outside of the biblical Christian framework, that postulate, that, that, uh, that premise does not hold in other cultures, other places that do not have the Bible as the basis of their society. All people are corrupt. Coming from Genesis 8:21 through uh, Genesis 8:21, but you could also see uh, chapter 6 verse 5 other verses as uh, if you've been raised in the church, you probably have all memorized Romans 3:23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But back here in Genesis as well. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. We're talking here with, about Noah. They've just survived the flood. They're on dry ground. 
and they're, they've come out. Noah has offered a, a sacrifice to God, and God looks down, and, he, and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So we, as a part of our, the, the, our founding fathers, knew that they had to create a government, a system that accounted for this aspect that all people were corrupt. And that's the difficult thing when you get into a witness of rebels. Because we're, who can free ourselves completely of greed, of pride, of self-interest in the end? And that always, we, when those mixed motives come in, it messes up things as you, when you're involved in self-defense. Therefore, with fear and trembling, would everyone, anyone ever go down the road of rebellion? And they should always certainly be seeking the Lord very carefully about all that they're doing before they, in, in, before they consider any such uh, thing. Another verse... Um, a verse from which I think we get natural law. We talk about natural law, and uh, oftentimes people refer to John Locke or, or other philosophers. But there's a basis for it in, that goes beyond even those philosophers, even before those philosophers, back to Romans 2. In Romans 2, it talks about, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Natural law, having that law within yourself, it doesn't take a lot of, you know, this is not culturally dependent. To know that if somebody takes something from you that you own, that they're in the wrong. There's been an injustice committed. If somebody destroys a life, somebody that's precious to you, I mean, you can be a pluralist or a, 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 a relativist all you want, and suddenly when your life is on the one that's on the line that's being threatened, you know suddenly that it's wrong, it's unjust for somebody to take your life by coercion when you, when you haven't done anything to deserve that. It's, w- there's a natural law within us, and in fr- face of that natural law, we either accuse or excuse ourselves when we find that we can't live consistently with it. I remember uh, when I was, I think I was kindergarten, might have been first grade, I was, uh, uh, I had a, I learned how evil I was. The natural law was a work. Um, I was out on the playground one day and, and uh, another boy took my ball and, and I tried to get it back and, and he kicked me in the groin and I learned a very painful lesson. I'd never uh, been kicked there before. It was very hard. <laughs> And I thought, oh, that's what you do on the playground. Well, a couple of weeks later, another little boy did something to bother me and upset me. And I knew how bad it hurt to kick somebody in the groin, so I didn't do that. I kicked him in the shin. And, and I thought, yep, this is what you do. And the little boy didn't fight back. His name was James. I don't know whether he was from a Mennonite background or, or what background he was from, Quaker maybe, uh, but his family was... Uh, uh, they were very much from the, uh, a, uh, a more peaceful background than I was. And uh, he looked at me and he said, kick me again. And so I did. I kicked him again. <laughs> and then he said, kick me again. And 
by this time I was starting to get it that I might be in trouble here. And, and he did go and appeal to a higher authority and I was in trouble. Uh, <laughs> I didn't kick the third time. But he never responded to me. And I, in, in anger, and I learned from that, I, my conscience just really raked me over the coals over that because I had done something to somebody who really hadn't done anything that bad to me and I'd, I'd really tried hard to hurt him. And it just awakened me to, the natural law was at work within me and awakened me to how evil and bad I really was and I didn't even know it. Our, many of our founding fathers believed that the Ten Commandments was the epitome of the natural law. It was the best summary of the natural law. Um, in the first four commandments, it talks about how God is the only one who has the right to be worshipped. No images, no, uh, we, we should keep, we, there's no profaning of his name, we should have no other gods before him. And then we start getting into other, uh, other uh, rights there, I might say, uh, uh, commandments that give us rights, inalienable rights, rights that, should, that are given by God, rights that should never be taken, rights that even natural law teaches us should, be, should belong to us, a right to life, a right to wife, marriage, family. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. And take somebody else's property. Shall not covet another man's wife. You, it's wrong to take somebody else's possessions. The Bible allows for possessions. And you should not take away somebody. You, shan't, you should not steal. So you should not take somebody else's property. A right to reputation. That's a right to a fair trial. As well. And back in, a, that's enumerated on later on in Deuteronomy when it talks about a, and an accusation should not be permit, per, permitted except on the basis of two or three witnesses. We have a right to fair trial. Going back to all people should be treated equally. Nobody is above the law. The law should rule over people's lives. And so we have these inalienable rights that come to us. Again, outside of a biblical culture, we might be really struggling to find that rights are inalienable as opposed to something that's just granted to us by the government. Rulers rule by consent to the governed. We're still on uh, those principles that are probably pretty easy to accept. Might be getting a little bit more difficult, but most of us here in a, in a Republican de- democracy, uh, the republic that we have, we, we don't struggle too much with the idea that we have the right to select our rulers, that they rule at our cons- by our consent. Um, in uh, Deuteronomy 17, we've got the basis for that. You may set a king over you. This is Moses speaking to the people many years before a king was ever chosen. And, but he's telling them, when you get to the promised land, there's going to come a day, you're probably going to want a king, and you may set a king over you whom the Lord will choose from among your brothers. He shall not multiply horses or wives or silver or gold for himself. He's not supposed to take advantage of his office. He shall have a copy of the book of the law made for himself, and he shall read from it every day of his life, 
that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, and that he may fear and obey God. The ruler isn't supposed to set himself above everybody else. A lot of current frustration is being expressed in our country right now, uh, being expressed by what's called the Tea Party movement. And it's based upon the, a lot of it's based upon the idea that we do have a ruling class in many ways, that whether it be Republican or Democrat or whatever, that has set itself above the people in general, that they are, um, they are oftentimes voting in laws that they exempt themselves from, like OSHA, for example, or uh, like uh, uh, ratios in, in hiring people and different things. They, are, uh, uh, they oftentimes have the, they've voted themselves lots of pay increases and, and, and good health insurance and things that, uh, and it's, it's frustrating to us oftentimes. It's frustrating to a lot of people, and, and it's a big, I think a big part of that movement called the Tea Party today is, is in frustration to what is happening on the, in terms of our government, off, our ruling class setting themselves above everybody else in many ways. We have a... In the Bible, we have several examples. It's interesting, Gideon, uh, a very successful military commander, and the people wanted to make him king in Judges, and he refused to do so. He said, the Lord is your king, and he refused to be made a king on their behalf. And then we, have, we come along to Samuel and Saul, and, with, um, and uh, uh, the people say that we want a king to fight our battles and to execute justice for us. And so the day comes, and, and of course this was prophesied years ago, years before, through uh, uh, Moses, but, uh, and God allows them to set up a king as they want. Samuel anoints Saul, um, but Saul is not recognized as king until there's a lot of worthless fellows that speak against him until he goes out and defeats the Ammonites, and he comes back in, and after that victory, the people are convinced that he can actually do the job, and they anoint him king a second time and recognized as king. Of course, we know that Saul had a falling out. He disobeyed God. He set himself above God's law later on. And God said he would take the kingdom away from him. He did it twice. First of all, God said he would take the kingdom away from Saul's descendants. And then second of all, the second time, God said, I've rejected you from being king. Then we have uh, Samuel and David. And even though David was um, uh, anointed king while Saul was still king, David didn't reach out and grab it. He, instead, he, he, he did not rebel against Saul. He, he stayed in there with him and, of course, and, and, and ran away from him as much as he could and fought Israel's battles while he was running away from Saul as much as he could. And then Saul was killed in battle. He and his... his um, and he and Jonathan, and at that point, then Judah appointed David king. They, they, they anointed him king after Samuel had already, many years after Samuel had already anointed him king. And then later on, the rest of Israel recognized David also as king, and they came. So David and Saul both had to take over their authority. God appointed them. He anointed them. But they still had to get consent from the people that they ruled. 
we had the example of Solomon, and, and uh, of course David began going down the road that God said, don't do, don't collect wives, and all these things. And, and because he did, and because of some of the sin that David committed, he had several sons that led to infighting among them about who would be the next king. Uh, David appointed his son Solomon, and there was, uh, there was some major problems. But God recognized that, and God, in conjunction with the people, Solomon was recognized as king then. But Solomon then, he did what the fathers do in moderation, the sons do in excess, it's been said. And what David did in collecting wives and doing things, Solomon did in excess tremendously. And in his later years, his foreign wives, especially where he'd arranged political alliances, began to lead him astray from God. And he began to build temples and sacrifice to gods that were not God. And God, as a result, rejected Solomon as well and said that he was going to tear the kingdom out of his hands. And we saw the fruit of that with Rehoboam, then when, who came along after Rehoboam, the famous story where he did not uh, listen to the, the, uh, the old men, he listened to the young men, and he, he increased the burden of taxes and things upon upon the people, and the result was that they took away their consent for, from David's line to rule, and ten tribes removed themselves. And Judah and, uh, went to, was going to go to war against the other tribes to bring them back under sub- subjection, and God told Rehoboam and told them, no, this is from me. Don't do this. And so there was a place where God reinforced the consent of the people there, as the, tri- as, the, as the country split up and weakened the country. And, of course, it led to degradation and finally, uh, eventually, even exile. As the country slid further and further away from God. The next principle is a logical extension, perhaps, of the first four. When a ruler breaks the law, the people are responsible to hold the the ruler accountable. Well, obviously, if we're all equal, created equal, and if all people are corrupt, even our kings, our rulers are corrupt, and we need protection from them, they can go wrong. Uh, And since no person is above the law, and since the rulers rule with the consent of the governed, then we are responsible to hold our leaders accountable. One verse among many that could be chosen was Deuteronomy 18. And this verse, uh, this passage was especially written. It's a great prophecy about the coming Messiah. Uh, The perfect ruler, the prophet, who would be the prophet, priest, and king rolled into one person. He would be the, the ruler who would be like Moses, the one that they should all follow eventually. And it's a prophecy uh, that leads to Jesus. But there's also another aspect to it, and that is that there are going to be prophets, uh, Moses said, who would not be good people. Uh, He talks about there, I I will raise up for them, for the people of, of Israel, a prophet like you, like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them in all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. That's pretty serious back then. Um, Goes on. 
And then it ends with, you need not be afraid of him. I'm not promoting death penalties here for our, our rulers. Please don't excuse me. <laughs> or please do excuse me on that. I, but, uh, but that is what uh, the people of Israel were told. They were told to hold their leaders accountable. And there is a basis where uh, we need to hold leadership accountable as well. And, the, uh, and our founding fathers felt that they needed to hold their leaders accountable, the British. When a ruler and the people break the law, God will remove both of them. Do you believe that? That was kind of an eye-opener to me when I first saw it. How would that affect your prayer life today for our country if you really believe that? In Deuteronomy 18... Excuse me, in First Samuel, yeah, twelve, fourteen through fifteen. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if you and if both you and the king who reign over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. I think that was behind the quote that is on the Jefferson Memorial. We talk about the, the least religious of our founding fathers here. We talked about him earlier uh, in the video that was going on there. Thomas Jefferson talked about God who gave us liberty can Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Well, Mike tells us that whenever we speak, we always got to ask, so what? (laughs) And so we're down to that here. So, okay, there is somewhere back there, there might be a biblical basis for, for thinking about, for, for, not just, for, for not just Christian pacifism, but for actually being involved in, in, a, in, in, a, in, our, in the political life of our country, in holding leaders accountable, in, um, in actual rebellion, even in some cases. Not that I'm promoting that or saying that we're anywhere near that. But God's word is the authority. And I think one thing that is very important is that we know it. We know God's word. It is the most important book of history. It's been, like we said before, it's been translated into more languages. It's the book that tyrants fear worldwide. We ought to know God's word. We were talking in Sunday school today about getting in God's word as much as we can, reading it in the morning, reading it in the evening. Many of our founding fathers had a principle of trying to read through the Bible once a year. We were talking to, the other night, a few of us got to hear Norm Geisler speak, um, an apologist, a Christian apologist, a teacher. And uh, Norm was saying that even at this age of 73, he makes it a point to try to read the Bible through every year. He now counts that he's read the Bible through... (coughs) 
from cover to cover for 50, 52 times doing his once a year type of reading. We ought to know the Bible. It ought to be a part of our lives. It was a part of our founding fathers' lives. They considered it important. Our country's history it was, is much more dependent upon it than we realize. God's word is also of the authority. We ought to defend it. And again, this is not a class on apologetics for, the, for, the, for God's word today, on inerrancy or the reasons why we believe God's word should be the authority in your life. But maybe it just hints that it's been the, a very important book in our, in our nation's history. And maybe we should also be we're very familiar with it as well, and we should be ready to defend it. If you don't feel like, if you've been taught as I was at one point in my early Christian life, that God's word was a mixture of man's word and God's word, and it was, my, it was my job to sort it out and figure out which was which, which just kind of robbed me of any desire to read God's word and to apply it to my life. If you're in that position, talk with somebody. Don't be stuck there. You're not going to grow if that's where you're at. You need to get your, your, your reasons in place and understand why there's good reason to believe in, in this book that we have that we call the Bible. God's word is also the authority. We should obey it. As you read it, ask God, what would you have me do? How can I apply this to my life, to my family? And finally, God's word is the authority. We should teach it to our children, to others. We should not go on being babes, but we should go deeper into the word and we should be ready to every person here is a teacher every adult at least is a teacher everyone who knows something about the word that doesn't that somebody else doesn't know you're a teacher and you can be a teacher of the word one other thing i might mention i have here some registration forms for voting if somebody hasn't registered yet and you want to vote we do have registration forms so, so we're coming into the election cycle I want to take this last moment to just to touch on the whole subject of um, submission to authority and how, that, how being good citizens can also be submission to authority. So I hope that you can see that there is a basis for that, even in the, even in the Scripture. And our founding fathers perhaps did have a basis for what they did. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue our worship... I pray that uh, the things I've shared today, uh, that uh, they will promote discussion and uh, that uh, it will cause people to, uh, if they are not in your word, to think about getting more deeply into your word, to become familiar with the broad themes of the Bible and the role that it has played in history. That uh, beyond that, that they would see you speaking to them through it and that it would touch their lives and make an impact upon them that we might be more Christian, more biblical in our worldview, in our mindset. Lord, help us to be your people, the people of God. You've called us to be your image bearers. We were created in your image. What a shame when we stray from that image because we don't know your word, we don't know you. Lord, uh, draw us closer into a deeper walk with you. Pray that the rest of our service here would do that very thing as we sing, as we worship together as we share in open worship. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart be pleasing in your sight. Draw us more into your image 
Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.